At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. One of the things I like to do if I'm super stressed is to go and find videos of cute animals. I know I'm not alone in this because, of course, the internet was essentially invented to be a repository of photos of cats. Am I right? Or, okay, well, there's a lot of these videos out there. But some of my favorite ones are the ones of animals supposedly dreaming like puppies with their little feet going as if they're running in some kind of uh, mythical field of, I don't know, dog treats. Those always seem to make me feel a little better and a little less stressed. But I didn't really realize the implications of this anthropomorphization, if that's what it is, until I read a book by David Peña Guzman. He's an associate professor of humanities and liberal studies at San Francisco State University. And he's an animal ethicist. He's also the co-author of a book called Chimpanzee Rights, and he hosts the Overthink podcast. But he recently wrote a book called When Animals Dream, Exploring the Hidden World of Animal Consciousness. You know I love books like this, like Jackie Higgins, Sentient, and Sine Montgomery, all her books about octopuses and hawks and various other animals. Taking a deep dive into the inner mental world of an animal is really fascinating to me. But I never really thought we could glean anything significant from animal dreams. Because after all, we can't even really be sure that humans dream in the way that we think we do. Or can we? That's still a ripe area of controversy, even among experimental psychologists. But if animals do dream, if those puppies really are running through their field of dreams, what does that mean? in terms of their sentience, or how we treat them? Well, that's a question I asked of David Peña Guzman. David Peña Guzman, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you. I cannot tell you how happy I am to be here. I'm a fan of the podcast, so I'm now on the other end. (laughs) How great to hear, how great to hear. I'm really excited to hear about how animals dream. Uh, and one of, in one of my favorite classes in college was an ethology class where we just talked about animal behavior and learning about all the bizarre things that animals do that are highly complex. <laughs> I still find it so fascinating. And, you know, one of my favorite videos when I talk about sleep is this video of this mother cat cradling her kitten and the kitten's like feet are kind of like running as if it's running in some kind of something, something. And at one point, the mother like, you know, puts her arm around the and it looks like she's she's kind of protecting her baby from a bad dream. I mean, I'm sure I'm anthropomorphizing, but like, is that possible? (laughs) The mom knows, or she's just like, stop kicking me. (laughs) You know, I don't know with this particular case, uh, but one of the main ideas of the book is that the claim that other animals have dreams, dream experiences in the middle of the night, is not anthropomorphic, even though many of us might think that it is. Uh, We have this intuition that that's just a human behavior, right? To have a dream just seems like such a sophisticated cognitive achievement that we assume that, you know, those kittens or that mommy cat couldn't possibly be having that reality simulation that is a dream. And so, you know, according to my book, the answer is that's pretty reasonable. Although I'll, I'll add a caveat here, which is that with very young animals, human and non human, things get a little bit more complicated, because newborns often perform 
behaviors that could be read as markers of, of dream phenomenology when, in fact, they might not be the best examples. It's usually in more mature animals that you see that clear correlation. Well, so tell us a little bit about that. I mean, how do we know whether or not animals dream? I mean, it's hard to tell in humans, right? <laughs> so it is, yes, it's very difficult uh, to tell in humans. Um, and especially when you add barriers like language, cultural differences. In one of the essays that he wrote on dreams, an essay called On Dreams, Freud talks about the difficulty. And uh, he, he talks about the difficulty, for instance, in connection to human infants. So to keep the, the same theme here as um, uh, the kittens. And he says, I saw these two and three-year-old babies making behaviors in the middle of the sleep that alluded to, to what just had happened when they were awake right before falling asleep. And so he says there's good reason to think that there's a continuation of the waking world into the dream world. And so he says, yes, I think young children dream, but he also recognizes that, that we have some barriers of access when it comes to other people, especially those with whom we cannot communicate. And that's a central problematic in, in my work, which is how do we think about that, that limit in the context of non-human animals? And what I try to do is gather as much empirical evidence as possible for thinking that other animals do have these nightly explosions of feelings and thoughts and experiences, and then try to interpret them from a philosophical perspective. What do they tell us about animal cognition? What do they tell us about animal emotion? What do they tell us about animal imagination? What do they tell us about animal subjectivity more generally? And in general, I focus on two kinds of evidence that become the, the training wheels, if you want to use a visual metaphor for the bicycle that is a book. Um, so the, the book leans on those two wheels. And that is the neuroscientific evidence that we get from looking at what the brains of animals are doing when they are asleep, especially when they go into what is known as REM sleep. And then on the other hand, we have behavioral evidence. So what their bodies do. So this is where the kittens moving their legs as if they're running, that's where that would fall. So let's talk a little bit about these two pillars. I think one of the, one of the mistakes that a lot of even neuroscientists have made is assuming that if we see brain activity when a person is asleep in terms of like what brain regions are active, that that is very much what it what is like when we are awake. When the truth is, is that those are very different states of consciousness. Those are there are many very different, you know, brain regions don't act in islands, they are connected. And so, you know, we, it could be a very different experience. So I mean, I guess like my, my question would be sort of like, how established is the neuroscience of dreams in humans? And or how much of what you're writing about in the book is coming from you know, extrapolations of the neuroscience of what's happening in humans onto other animals versus, you know, just looking at the animals from the beginning? That's a really convoluted question. I'm very sorry about that. <laughs> no. Oh, no, no. It, so it is convoluted, but it's not because you expressed it in a convoluted manner. It's because the subject itself is quite complex, but you are putting your finger on a really important issue. So let's break it down into two parts here. So the first one is you're right that Whenever we see brain activity happening in the middle of the sleep cycle, we cannot automatically assume that it's just like when we're awake, right? And the reason for this is because we know that they can be very different experiences. And in fact, there can be a lot of brain activity happening in the night for those of us who sleep at night. Other animals are nocturnal and they uh, sleep during the day. So we have to keep that in mind. But there's a lot of brain activity that happens during sleep that is unconscious and that doesn't produce any sort of experience. So there is now a very long uh, history of research, for instance, on memory consolidation that we know happens behind the veil of conscious awareness. And so the difficulty here is that we have to keep not two, but three different categories clearly apart. So you have waking experiences, like the one that you and I are having right now in recording this episode. Or so we think. Or so, or so we think, yeah, we can get into illusionism about <laughs> consciousness at another time. <laughs> um, 
So you have waking experience. And then when you switch over to sleep, you have two additional categories. You have possibly conscious mental states, what we would call dreams. And then you have mental states that are entirely unconscious and that don't produce a subjective feeling. Kind of that thing that happens in the back of the mind without the subject ever registering that it's going on. And so, yes, there are all these moving pieces that make it a little bit difficult to navigate this terrain, which is what I try to do in the book. I try to to step on the right stones in order to make that connection between the neuroscientific research that has been produced on animals who are sleeping and then the phenomenology of dreaming. Because in many ways, the core insight of the book is that for non-human animals too, many of these indicators of brain activity are accompanied by a subjective phenomenology. There, There really is a subjective world that lights up when these animals are asleep, and that's the dream world. And so if we think about this in connection to research on human dreaming, which was the second part of your question, in the book I talk about a double standard that I have noticed in the field of of animal sleep research. When it comes to human beings like you and I, most scientists don't hesitate. They look for the right uh, neural patterns, neural indicators, the neural correlates of dreaming, and they jump from that to making claims about what dreaming is like, what are people dreaming about, what it means to dream. So there there isn't that hesitation of, no, we cannot say that there is really a subjective process happening here. But when it comes to animals, I notice that hesitation all over the place. So Experts on animals would find the exact same patterns of brain activity, let's say in rats or in um, cats or in other animals, that we accept as good evidence of dreaming in humans, but they wouldn't feel comfortable taking that leap. And I believe that that's a double standard that speaks to a very long history of human exceptionalism that still to this day shapes the worldview of a lot of empirical science. Well, and you talk about the sort of silent century, um, a period of time in which, you know, we really didn't project anything into what's happening in the mind of an animal um, somewhere almost in antithesis to Freud, uh, because, of course, there was a lot of pushback against, you know, people like Freud who were overstating a lot of the claims that they were making. And then there was this like, behaviorism in in psychology that came in, which is like, you can only really talk about behavior that you can observe and measure. We can't really talk about what's inside the black box of, of cognition or the brain until the 1980s, even when it comes to, you know, our understanding of what's happening in the human brain. So can you talk a little bit about what you think are the outcomes or the consequences of so much science continuing with this silent period when it comes to how we really get a deep understanding of what's going on in the minds of either humans or other animals. Yeah, thanks for this question, because it allows me to talk about um, the historical framework that I use to just launch the book. So the book opens with the story. It's um, a combination of a history and a genealogy at once about how at the start of the 20th century, scientists move away from what I consider to be an open-mindedness about the mental and subjective states of other animals that we do observe with 19th century naturalists. So if you read somebody like Charles Darwin or a number of other naturalists, um, you get the sense that they are truly curious about what are other animals thinking about? Do they feel emotions? What emotions? What mental states? in what way, what explanation can there be for it? And because of the rise of behaviorism in the first few decades of the 20th century, psychology pivots entirely away from that, opening this thing that I call the silent century, by which I just mean the 20th century. And it's a century when scientists, especially those who study the psyche, psychologists, um, cognitive scientists, we could say, suddenly refuse to talk about what's happening inside the mind, which is somewhat paradoxical, right? To be an expert on the psyche who 
doesn't actually want to talk about the psyche or about psychic processes. And you're correct to bring in Sigmund Freud, the, the father of psychoanalysis, because the movement away from this older tradition was to some extent precipitated by a desire to bring psychology in line with a new spirit of scientificity or with a new model of what it means to be a science. And Sigmund Freud's psychoanalysis was sometimes presented as the antithesis of that new spirit of science. So if we want to do real science, we just focus on what is measurable, what is observable, instead of being quacks like Freud, who are just speculating, you know, left and right about psychic processes, mental dynamics, things like that. And unfortunately, this movement away from an interest in mental interiority comes at a gigantic cost for the sciences because it means that we leave behind precisely the very thing that ought to motivate psychology, which is trying to, quote-unquote, crack open the mind and try to look inside and try to understand its dynamics. And so for me, the problem with that is twofold. On the one hand, it causes a lot of scientists to simply stop thinking about the minds of other animals. And I think that's just a fascinating area of research, not just for scientists, but also for humanists like myself. On the other hand, it also introduces that double standard that I talked about uh, a few minutes ago. Because psychologists very quickly over the course of a couple of decades began realizing, mm, you know, this behaviorist model that we have been playing with for the first half of the 20th century, it's quite limiting because it means that we can't be psychologists. And so they abandon their behaviorism, but only in connection to human animals. They continued being behaviorists in connection to other animals. And sadly, even today, there are a lot of people who, in one way or another, still embrace behaviorist principles in their research about animals and prefer not to talk about what animals think, what animals feel, what animals experience out of fear that maybe they will be accused of you know, being a modern version of Freud in connection to those animals. I mean, absolutely. I think that anytime you start talking about something that either we think about as being uniquely human, like autobiographical episodic memory or, you know, spatial navigation, which maybe we now know is absolutely not uniquely human because there is a big literature about rodents and, and birds who, who do this very well. You, you often sort of, you know, have this argument between people who are primarily studying animals and, and those primarily studying humans about whether it really is just selective for humans or, 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 um, or something that you can find an animal model of. So I think that that is a, a really big issue. I mean, I, I'll push back a little bit and say that I don't know that psychologists necessarily aren't interested in what's going on in the mind. And I do think that there were a number of improvements in scientific methods and psychology that came out of the behaviorist movement. And I think that we actually learned a lot about our own biases and, and you know, cognitive shortcuts and, and stuff because we stuck for a while to what was observable and measurable as opposed to what our intuitions were. But I agree with you that that now it's time to sort of start to incorporate more of the, I mean, I might even call it the humanities side of it, um, where, you know, psychology has, especially experimental psychology, has, has been, you know, pretty siloed for a long time and not not, you know, leaving the philosophy to the philosophers um, and the speculation, you know, to other disciplines. And I'm not saying that we should go in that direction or that we should abandon a lot of our methods. Um, but what I really liked about the way that you write in your book is that you're using uh, scientific studies and moral philosophical arguments um, to uh, help us understand not only what the evidence is for what and whether and how animals might have these dream states, but what those implications are in terms of how we regard those animals and, and sort of the, the morality of our society. I don't think a lot of people could do what you've done <laughs> at that <laughs> level. I mean, I really commend you for it. But one of the things that I, I, I kind of really liked in the beginning of your book is how you talk about there are sort of like three things that we need to assume an animal must have in terms of its consciousness if it dreams. So do you want to talk about those three things and sort of what that means ultimately? Yeah, I, I'm very excited to talk about those three 
central terms that that in many ways are the three they're the trinity of the book um the the conclusions that follow from the fact that we have empirical evidence for animal dreaming and i really appreciate that you bring in the fact that maybe a humanistic approach in this case a philosophical one um although one that's also influenced by by literature to some degree can add something of value to this discussion because I am deeply committed to the value of the humanities. I myself am a humanist. I am trained as a as a philosopher, not as a scientist. And it, it is a central conviction of mine that I could not have written this book in the way in which I wrote it had I not had that training. And the reason for that is because what the humanities allowed me to do is to really zoom in on the distinction between a fact and its meaning. So especially in in chapter one, where I talk about, chapter one is entirely about science. Um, I am able, because of this background, to look at empirical research that professional scientists have produced and raise questions about what those facts actually mean when you put them all together that sometimes scientists don't ask in the same way. And I do think that that's something that the humanities can, can bring to the sciences and collaborate with. So in, in the book, I talk about my method for writing the book as being integrative because I do integrate the humanities and the sciences in this constant dialectic where one pushes in one way, the other one pushes in the other way, and then you just follow the tension wherever it might lead you. And that's why I jump from uh, one paragraph to the next, let's say from an empirical study where I have to talk about specific neurons then in the next paragraph, I talk about the imagination, and, and that's that dance kind of happening. And in connection to the three terms that I argue we need to use in order to think about the philosophy of animal dreams, that's where you see that dance also. So just to give a little bit of, of context, in terms of the structure of the book, I opened the book with chapter one, just laying out as much of the empirical evidence as I can for thinking that on purely scientific grounds, we actually do have reason to believe that animals perform reality simulations. That's the goal of chapter one. In chapter two, then I build on top of that. So in, in some ways, it's a very linear book where what comes after entirely depends logically on what was preceded. So once we have reason to believe that, now this is the philosopher in me speaking, what follows about the minds of animals? And I argue that necessarily three things follow. The first one is that animals are subjectively conscious. And that's a really tricky term for anybody who is familiar with the science or the philosophy of consciousness. Subjectivity, awareness, consciousness, these are terms that experts use in all kinds of ways. Um, you know, Everybody has their own definition. But I argue that if you're a dreamer, independently of what species you belong to, then by definition, you're the kind of animal that can generate from out of yourself a phenomenal world, a world of sensation, a world of, um, let's say, well, a, a world of sensation, let's leave it at that. And that's the dream world. Independently of how simple or sophisticated that world is, it means that you are an ego that has a world that surrounds it. And that's in some ways the most minimal definition of subjectivity or consciousness or awareness that we can generate. And so it, it does follow that all the, all the animals that are mentioned in chapter one then suddenly get recast in chapter two, not just as dreamers, but as phenomenological subjects, as creatures in relation to whom it makes sense to use the term I, or self, or ego. The second term that I use to think about the philosophical ramifications of the empirical evidence is affect, which is closely connected to the term emotion. And in some ways, I use them interchangeably in this context, although I think there are good reasons for keeping them separate. If, if that was the, the, the central uh, subject of the book, I might differentiate them. But one of the things that we have learned in the 20th century about dreams is that all of our dreams have an emotional dimension to them. So 
sometimes it's a very intense emotional dimension, right? Like I've woken up crying in the middle of a nightmare. And I've also woken up with a feeling of elation, you know, when I dreamt, I don't know, that I won the the Olympic Games, <laughs> in <laughs> that I won uh, gold in some sport at the Olympics. But even dreams that are more simple, that bring about, let's say, a sense of just contentment, that is also an emotional state. And it means that we are never entirely passive observers of our own dreams, There's always affect, there's always emotion, there's always sentiment. And so then I I talk about the philosophy of non-human emotions in connection to dreams. The third and the last term that that I use to think about these ramifications is conceptually the the most tricky one, and that is metacognition. Earlier, you mentioned that a lot of people will point to various things that will separate humans from other animals, like spatial navigation, for instance, or, you know, morality or language. One of the concepts that is typically used to police the boundary between us and the rest of the animal kingdom is metacognition, which is the capacity to think about thought itself, to sort of step back and say, what am I thinking about right now? Do I really believe this or not? Where there is a reflexive element and the mind sort of folds into itself. We know that there is a close connection between some dreams and metacognition in humans. And these are what we call lucid dreams. Mm, sure. Yeah. Have you had a, a lucid dream before? I haven't, but I've, I, you know, one of our great friends is Matt Walker, who's a sleep researcher. And, and we often talk about, you know, lucid dreaming, you know, this ability to control your own dreams. Yeah. And so... Yeah, he's given me tips on how to do it, and I, I, I've never managed it yet. <laughs> yeah, there are some really fascinating um, uh, like how-to uh, guides for lucid dreaming. And some people are just lucid dreamers by nature. They're more likely to have lucid dreams. I am one of them. When I was a kid, I used to have these lucid dreams. And in my 10-year-old mind, I was convinced that I was special, um, just like cognitively gifted because I, I could control my dreams. And so I had dreams where I could decide what would happen next. So, oh, this dream is really good. Let me keep going. Or, oh, this nightmare is getting a little scary. Let me wake up. And I, I, I knew that I could wake up and I would wake up. And then I would tell myself, yeah, that was the right decision. And I could even, after waking up, decide to go back and pick up the dream right where I left it off if I was feeling particularly courageous that night. And again, so this is less rare than I thought at the time. A lot of people are lucid dreamers, so I was not special. But we know that there is this connection because lucid dreaming is an example or an instantiation of metacognition. Because when you have that thought in in the middle of, of the night of, I am dreaming right now, this is not real life, it means that you are reflecting upon your own mental states. And so... We know that there is that connection. And in the book, I talk about the possibility. I want to underline that term because I am very clear that this is the most speculative part of the book. I talk about the possibility of lucid dreaming in other animals. And the reason that I go in that direction is because I found a couple of theories of dream lucidity that leave open the door for for other animals. And also because there is, by now, over the last 30 years, there's been an explosion of research around non-human metacognition that has shown, I think, pretty convincingly that, in fact, metacognition is not exclusively human. It is not our property in the order of creation. Many other animals display clear indicators of metacognitive capacities. It's just that, of course, they can't talk about them using human-style language. And so combining both these theories of lucidity that leave the door open for animals and research about metacognition unconnected to dreaming, I tried to tiptoe around the possibility that there might be other animals who have something like that eureka moment of thinking to themselves in the middle of the night, this is bizarre. You know, I don't think they use the term dream because that's that's our concept, that's our term, but they they have a feeling of what I call perceptual incongruity. So they realize that their perception in that moment 
is bizarre and it differs from what is normal. And that already requires that taking of a step back and reflecting on your immediate mental reality. So anyways, those are the three terms. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. I see where you're coming from when you talk about, um, I mean, I, I love the example of lucid dreaming as an example of meta, meta consciousness or metacognition. And this idea that if you recognize that what your inner mental world has provided for you is bizarre or incongruent with what you would expect from just a reaction of the physical world outside of you, that is an indicator that uh, you have some at least a preliminary understanding that your inner mental world is something that is yours and not just a a reflex of what's outside or, you know, reflection of like what's, what's outside. So can you give us an example of like any evidence that this is the case or, or do you think that like, this is where future work should go? I mean, how do we, how do we answer this question? You know, what, what would be an example of an animal behavior that would hint to us that they do have this ability. So this is where I become disappointing (laughs) because I don't have a good answer to that. And the reason is that there are no clear behaviors as of now, uh, bodily behaviors that indicate explicitly lucid dreaming as opposed to non-lucid dreaming. And, uh, you know, in the case of humans, we, we do rely on verbal reports for that in some form of communication. So, I'm not sure that we're ever going to get confirmation of that, although, you know, I want to be open-minded about the future. And scientists are extremely clever in the way in which they construct experiments. Um, I've been fascinated by by just the ingenuity of some of the experiments that I that I discuss and dissect in the book. But this is a particularly tricky terrain. Nonetheless, I think the animals that would be the better candidates for lucid dreaming are those for whom we already have evidence of metacognition in waking experience. And that includes, um, of course, the the great apes. It includes actually a ton of mammals. Uh, It includes also some birds and uh, also uh, marine mammals. So here we're talking, um, you know, cetaceans, for instance, because they're the only thing that would be required is that they activate that capacity while asleep, but they would already have that capacity. But again, it's speculative terrain, and I am, I'm very mindful of that and very careful to, to stress that it is a speculative claim in the book um, that has less support than the rest of the arguments. I mean, I'm kind of intrigued about this idea. It's, it's a fun thought experiment of how you would do this. One, one idea might be that, like, let's say you have a rodent uh, in a in a in a kind of caged room, and uh, could you actually give it some kind of hallucinogenic substance and then track whether it understands that it's hallucinating <laughs> versus actually seeing that thing? So, for example, if you treat if you train the animal to Um, Whenever there's a red square on one wall, that means a pellet is going to come out and it would run to get the pellet. If it's hallucinating, would it just see this thing and not run for the pellet? I mean, (laughs) because it knows that the pellet isn't going to be there because it's all in its mind. Yeah, I mean, this this just like opens so many possibilities, right? And uh, some people do define dreams as a kind of, as a subspecies of hallucinations. Uh, So there is a kind of... continuity that could be the basis for for research. Um, At the same time, I think it's just so complicated because what differentiates lucid dreaming from non-lucid dreaming is, again, just that aha moment, that mental moment of clarity and enlightenment that doesn't need to be followed by any specific course of action. And even in humans, we know that there are very different degrees of lucidity. Some can result in different behavior in the dream world. But some, you know, the the dream continues just the same, and it's just that you're aware. You're just 
you just know that it's happening. But it, it is a really interesting thought experiment to consider how one might go about that. One other possibility for going about that would be to do what dream researchers a lot of them do right now with humans, which is to look for the activation of executive centers in the brain in the middle of dreaming. So we know that what differentiates lucid from non-lucid dreams is that your executive centers get activated for rationality, for uh, centralized control of behavior, for voluntary action. And so if we were able to make a parallel to other animals with similar brain structures, then maybe a similar argument could be made because we know that those centers actually get deactivated during non-lucid dreaming. So that is a sort of telltale sign of lucidity. So there's another side of your book, though, that I think only a person who's a philosopher or trained in the humanities uh, primarily would could, could talk about so eloquently and deeply, which is that the the extra meaning then of if this is true, what does this mean for our society, for how we treat animals and so forth? So tell us a little bit about sort of that side of it. Like if what, um, you know, the, the argument that or the evidence that you've presented is in fact uh, uh, true, uh, and it sounds like I'm saying that it's not true, but like let's, let's, <laughs> let's assume that you're right and animals uh, dream that they have these, these even some, th- these three components, including uh, metacognition, what does that mean in terms of our relationships with them and some of the policies that we have in place? Yeah, so to understand why the book goes there, I think I should clarify that I am an animal ethicist. Um, so I work on ethical questions regarding our treatment of animals, as well as questions concerning the rights of non-human beings. And so even though this book is primarily about the science of animal sleep and the philosophy of animal consciousness, which is what we've been talking about, which are also areas of expertise for me. If I'm being honest, the motivation, the raw motivation that drove me to write this book was moral in nature. And it was my intuition that there is a moral significance. There is a a moral implication to dreaming that I hadn't quite seen articulated anywhere in the literature. And so the, the argument here moves through the concept of moral status. So moral status is a foundational term in moral theory, in ethics, that is meant to pick up those entities that have entitlements, moral entitlements. So those that need to be treated fairly, treated justly, treated with dignity, with respect. And so when we say, why can't I kick my brother, but I can kick a rock in the middle of the road, the answer is moral status. It's because my brother is a sentient being with moral status. The rock is not. So so far as we know, have you seen everything everywhere all at once? (laughs) <laughs> yes, the scene with the rocks is so good. It is amazing. Um, okay. And so, yeah. And also, have you seen my brother? Who knows? Yeah. You know, hard to tell <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> the knife cuts both ways. <laughs> but, you know, it, it captures a very basic intuition that most people have, um, that some things matter morally and some things like the rock, notwithstanding this amazing film about the multiverse. And... I believe that dreaming gives you moral status, or at least it's a sufficient condition for claiming moral status. And that's because, as I mentioned earlier, when you dream, what exactly are you doing? On the most basic level, what is it to dream? Well, it means to invent a world from the deepest part of your being when you're entirely disconnected from the world around you by the physiology of sleep, right? Your eyes are closed. You're not really paying attention to the external world. You shut down physiologically, uh, or at least in, in your relationship to the outside world. And nonetheless, you just invent this fantastic, phantasmagoric, phenomenal field of experience, almost by magic, which is why historically dreams have been so central in myth and literature, in poetry, because they do have this magical quality to them. And so if you are the kind of subject that generates that phenomenal world, 
then that means that you are conscious in that minimalist sense that I described earlier. And my view in this book is that consciousness, especially what is called phenomenal consciousness, which has to do with feelings and affects and perceptions, that kind of consciousness, which if you don't have that, you cannot dream, is the foundation of moral status. So to go back to my brother and the rock, the reason that we care about my brother and not the rock is because he's the kind of entity that that feels things, that perceives things, that senses things. We can use the term sentience to capture that. In the term, I prefer the word consciousness, but that's because for me, those two are very, very closely associated. And so as soon as you realize that somebody is a dreamer, it has this unexpected, far-reaching consequence in moral theory, which is that they are actually entitled to certain moral protections, which are the moral protections that ride on the back of being a sentient, conscious being. And so the, the book ends on this moral and ethical note that, you know, then we can go even further by, by saying, well, what are the practical implications of that? If you grant animals moral status, then that does mean we have to change certain things about the way in which we treat them. And so that, that's just what a lot of animal ethicists have been saying for a very long time. It's just that I add the argument that, again, somewhat curiously, this bizarre thing that is streaming also gets us there. So I have two final questions, um, both of which are annoying. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> to warn you that right I, now. You can, you I don't believe you. <laughs> um, the first is that, you know, there are some uh, scientists, particularly ones that come out of this behaviorist tradition, and I'm not, by that I am not minimizing, you know, their contribution or their methods, who argue they what I call the buzzkill theory of dreams, which is that <laughs> this idea that they have meaning, that they are a simulation, happens when we make sense of what just happened after we wake up. But in the moment, it is random neural firing. You are not actually conscious in the way that you think you are. And so I, I just wanted to see how that maps onto, like, if, if they're right, and, you know, our interpretations of dreams, all the magic happens actually when we are back in the awake state and we are thinking back upon, you know, this memory of this disjointed series of brain firings. What implications would that have uh, for what you were talking about? Or can we just say they're wrong? So I would say that they're wrong, but that's because you're right. They do kill my buzz <laughs> uh, when it comes to both dreaming and animals. And the reason for that is because I think it's a very hard sell. It's a very clever argument in some ways to say everything that we value about dreams is actually retroactively constituted at the moment of remembrance. So, you know, we're going through our sleep cycle, we wake up, and then we project backwards this meaning and this significance. But it was not actually there in the going through of, of the sleep cycle. The reason that I think this is very difficult is because it doesn't answer two questions. The first one is it doesn't answer the question of why it only does that in some cases rather than others. Uh, because if it's just, so what prompts the, the remembrance? Because many times we wake up and we, we don't remember, sometimes we do. And it also doesn't capture one important point about dreaming, which is that we know from arousal data that something is happening to our bodies and our minds. So it's not as if we're just sleeping, everything is the same, and then later I project something backwards. When I am experiencing a dream in the middle of the night, my body will tell you. My heart rate will increase. I can start sweating. Uh, my respiration rate goes up. And this means that there's a reversal in the direction of certain physiological processes. And, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, waking up crying in the middle of a nightmare. Um, I'm sure a lot of people have had that experience. And it, conceptually, one could argue that I just retroactively projected the, the negative feelings, but it's really hard to argue that I retroactively projected my tears you know, the, oh my gosh, I just through magic, you know, made it seem as if I had been crying all along. And that applies not just to the tears, but 
also to the other um, forms of arousal that happen. And in the book, I do talk about nightmares in connection to other animals as probably the most powerful, but also the most depressing evidence that we have for thinking that animals have very complicated emotional states. Because it's a heartbreaking part of the book to think about the nightmares of other animals, especially keeping in mind, you know, this is the ethicist in me once again, that many of those nightmares have to do with what we have done to them when they're awake. So yes, that theory of retroactive constitution is there. I think it has lost significant favor, even among dream researchers. It's clever, but it is a bus killer. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and it's getting to the point where I feel like it is no longer Occam's razor because of this kind of evidence that you're suggesting where we have these, you know, arousal states. It starts to become a, the, 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 the explanation becomes more and more complicated if you really think about its, you know, what, what we would have to be doing in order to, for it to be entirely retrospective. Okay, so second annoying question. Um, okay, so so the, the first question was, what if what you're saying is like not true because of this one? Not true. <laughs> the second question is, what if you're what you're saying is true, and we apply the same three you know requirements of sentience or consciousness to artificial intelligence, which can simulate worlds, <laughs> which presumably maybe I don't know if they can feel emotions or like what kind of simulation that is, or it can become you know, meta-conscious? I don't know. I just wonder, like, if I just love to hear what you think when it comes to applying this to a non-biological brain. Oof, that, so that one is an annoying question because it's very hard to answer (laughs) and it's going to expose the limits of my thinking. So let me try to build up to it in what might be a, a more logical way. Not not more logical than the way you expressed expressed it. It was perfectly reasonable and logical, but I'm just trying to organize my thoughts. That's really what I'm getting at. So let me put my cards on the table. I don't think AI is conscious in the right way to have something like dreams and to have something like affect or emotions. And that's because I, I am maybe a biological thinker uh, who tries to reserve those for, for organic entities. And we know that AI can do fascinating cognitive operations. You know, think about memory storage. We are not going to compete with with a computer. Think about uh, things like face recognition capacities. You know, like go to any airport and you are going to be outcompeted by a tiny little camera. And so what AI is really good at doing is information processing. But that's different from that lived qualitative dimension of experience, of lived experience, that I personally capture with the term affect, the fact that it feels like something to be there. At the moment, we don't really have any reason to believe that AI has that. And I'm not sure that I can give a very sophisticated or interesting um, explanation as to why, other than to throw the burden onto the other side of this debate and say, what behaviors, let's say, of AI can get me to emotion, to affect, to felt feeling, to embodied feeling? And so I grant the, the let's say, cognitive capacities of AI having to do with information processing. Those are undeniable. Where things go wrong is in the other direction. But the reason that I say that this is very difficult for me is because you find another problem in the other direction. So my book focuses on animals, and here I'm appealing to organicity to not deal with the problem of AI. By the way, I wrote an entire chapter on AI and dreaming for the book that didn't make it into into the chapter precisely for this reason. But if we go in the other direction, in the direction of plants, you have a similar problem, right? So uh, a number of people have asked me if I believe plants dream and... uh, My feeling is to say, no, I think there is something significant about the difference between plant and animal. And I I have a podcast on my own called Overthink, where we did an episode on the philosophy of plant consciousness not too long ago. And I talk about this in greater detail, but I, I am committed to the view that there is something unique, not to humans, but to animals. Although I recognize that, that the boundaries let's say, between plant and animal, are very blurry because nature doesn't care for our categories. 
right? Nature is nature, and it's not a reflection of, of human thought or the human mind. In many ways, that's the great tragedy of being a minded life form, that you have this mind to think about the world, but the world doesn't fit very comfortably into whatever categories you bring into it. So yes, I, I would say that AI and maybe plants can't feel. And that's that's a very old argument. I'm not unique in making this all the way to Aristotle in the 4th century BC Greek philosopher. He says the difference between plants and animals has to do with movement. That's one. Plants cannot move. And the other one has to do with perception and emotion. Uh, plants can't really perceive. They're just vegetative. They can just feed themselves and keep on living, but that's it. Well, we'll just have to wait for the novelist Richard Powers to write another book about the nightmares and dreams of the forests <laughs> and uh, change your mind <laughs> on that. David Peña Guzman, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. And for our listeners, his book, When Animals Dream, The Hidden World of Animal Consciousness is now available at booksellers everywhere. Thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate being here. Thank you. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Cheng, Sean Johnson, Jordan Miller, Kyle Raihala, Michael Galgul, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stefan Meyer Awald, Dale Master, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac, and this episode was edited by Daniel Link. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you next time, or maybe in your puppy's dreams. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.